Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Reels, the podcast that celebrates diversity in front of and behind the camera by looking at overlooked or underappreciated movies, talking a bit about their pop culture significance and what it means to us. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. We're going to be breaking format a couple of different ways here because the movie we're going to be discussing for our overall pick this week, uh, Wonder Woman, is definitely not overlooked at the moment, and I'm pretty pleased that it's cleaning up at the box office as well. But we also have a special guest on today, so Kristen, why don't you introduce yourself and say what you will. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm a freelance writer, pop culture essayist. Uh, I do so many different things. <laughs> I'm kind of a unicorn in the film Twitter community. I am a female. I'm Latina and I'm disabled. So I am a triple threat that most people have never seen in their lives. So yay me. I run a classic film website called journeysinclassicfilm.com where I talk about pre-1970s stuff that's kind of where I got into writing and I do a classic film podcast called Ticklish Business where I talk about classic movies and interview amazing people and it's been really fun coming up on a year on that and then how I pay the bill is uh, I'm a classic flicks associate editor I work for them it used to be Netflix for classic cinema but now we're actually into making our own DVDs buying up titles from studios and releasing them on Blu-ray. It's been an adventure. My duties haven't changed, but it's been great to see us actually branch out into a different format. And I write for pretty much everybody. I submit essays for Crooked Scoreboard, uh, Heard Tell. I've written for Film School Rejects, Pacific Standard and Flavor Wire. So odds are, if you like some type of big contemporary film website, I've probably written for them. There's still a couple I haven't broken into I'm not a Vanity Fair variety or anything like that, but not you yet. like the cool niche stuff. Exactly. Not yet. Fingers crossed one day. You like cool niche stuff involving movies, and I've probably worked on it in some capacity. She also had a great interview with Sofia Coppola, which I think you did for, was it Film School Rejects? or Yeah, I got to I got to interview Sofia Coppola for Film School Rejects. They wanted me to go down and see her because I'd written a year ago about how much I loved her, and I thought that she would be great making The Beguiled, and I was so shocked when they actually called me and said, we totally think you know what you're talking about with this, <laughs> this movie. We think you're amazing. Do you want to fly out and have lunch with her? And I was like, oh my god, do I? So yeah, I got to fly down to Beverly Hills, have lunch with her, and I was just so happy. She's so unpretentious in person and delightful. I think that that's the cheesiest word I can use, but it's the word that best sums her up. So that was, yeah, easily like bucket list moment right there. I mean, that's something to be proud of on any stretch of the imagination. And I guess before we get started with our usual line of business, I have two questions, both kind of light. I want to make sure that I got the name of, I think, your podcast correctly. It's called Ticklish Business. It is. It's a quote from... A line in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the Marilyn Monroe movie. Ooh, yeah. Okay, Yeah, which cool. I play the audio clip in the beginning, the intro, so that people aren't assuming they're listening to, like, a porn podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> which is what I was afraid of when I set up the title. I was like, God, I hope people don't think it's some weird sex show or something. Well, considering that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes has a very healthy dominatrix streak going through it, that's not a bad thing to make clear up front. <laughs> Depending on any listener's personal tastes, that may also be a good thing. 
if it gets you to listen to the show, I don't care what your proclivities are. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second question, um, light but also a little more serious, because I think the closest me and Courtney have come so far to being heated in any sense was when we discussed the bling ring. So what are your thoughts on the bling ring? The bling ring, I, I actually went back and watched all of Sofia Coppola's movies uh, after I interviewed her. I hadn't seen Lost in Translation ever, so I had to tell her that when, when I met her. But I've, I have seen it now, so I've seen everything. And that includes The Beguile, which I've seen too. I find it to be fun. I think it's loud, it's garish, and it shows the utter horrors of what teenagers are doing in order to fit in. It's both Sofia Coppola's most perfect encapsulation, I think, of her aesthetic and also her most cynical film. Her other movies, even though they do involve, you know, death and destruction, there's still this air of agency to them. In this, it was just her pretty much saying, kids are terrifying. I don't even understand them at this point. Um, so <laughs> I, I enjoy it, but I do have issues with it. I think the first act is far funner than the second act. Once Emma Watson becomes the de facto lead of the film, it really loses something. I think if I ranked her films, it would be maybe fourth on the list out of six. <laughs> so I guess somewhere would be more towards the bottom. Her original films, I don't necessarily care for. I think she, which she has mentioned that she prefers to adapt. It's easier for her than to come up with a plot. Somewhere I have a new appreciation for it. I rewatched it after uh, several years and I enjoyed it, but I still don't love it. Virgin Suicides is still my favorite out of all of them. I'd have to agree with that, too. And I think uh, Courtney, listening to her little spiel there, I think if we revisit our conversation, we could both pull something from that and claim victory. Yes, so. <laughs> uh, especially when she was saying about the Emma Watson taking over. I was like, exactly. But, <laughs> but yeah, a good portion of it does lean a lot towards uh, Andrew's perspective of it as well. But yeah, I think that is yeah. the, the last time we were actually really heated, like divided over a, a feature film. Anything, I mean, yeah, really, the, yeah. the Blame Ring is, is for me, you know, as a, as a young woman under 30 i want to live in that movie and so i just i really want to live in paris hilton's house is what i'm saying and not have to worry <laughs> about money and sophia coppola has talked about how much she enjoys showing the aesthetics of being a teenager she, she said 80s movies why did everybody have to dress crappy you know why can't they dress really glamorous and cool and that's where i think the appeal for me is with a lot of her movies is that she really embraces that candy-coated love of fashion like if i had dispensable money that i could throw around i would so be one of those kids in that movie actually that is going to be a great jumping off point since we're talking about teen girls and their relation to their environments and their aesthetics because we like to start each episode with a discussion on two short films one picked by myself one picked by courtney and thankfully mine's a little more in line with summer fun but courtney i found yours to be a lot more interesting and i think we can build off what Kristen was just talking about. My film is called 7.2, and it was directed by Nita Manzur. And originally, I was looking for kind of light, frothy, blockbuster-style fun, which I guess we'll get more towards with your short. <laughs> but I had another one in mind that had female leads. So it was animated version, though. I, I really wanted a film by a female director. And so when I was scouring the web, I, I came across this one by 7.2. And it isn't as light and fun as the original one I was thinking of, but it was one that I, I kind of kept coming back to. I was like, no, I really, really like this. It's, it's a cross between 
teen comedy. Uh, like when it starts, you think it might be a raunchy teen comedy, and then it turns into Jason Bourne with, I would say, a shade of Harry Potter because it's set in a in a boarding school and there's like house points and and all that. So it's basically about this girl Cleo, which is short for Cleopatra Jones. The nod to black exploitation films, I'm hoping, was intentional. Uh, <laughs> and Cleo wakes up one day, pretty much on the ground. She's got amnesia, doesn't know who she is, and one of the head bullies at her school has told her she needs to bring something to her in the library at noon. And at this point, it's 11.41 in the morning, so she's got to figure out what's going on, who she is, and throughout the day, possibly kick some butt as well. Kristen, how'd you like 7.2 or didn't like 7.2? I thought this was really fun. I am a fan of crazy British humor. The Brits, despite being a country that has been steeped in like prim and proper prudity this was just in utter insanity and i had such fun with it there's some genuinely hilarious laugh lines you know one of her friends tells her that she watched a new show called i'm pregnant and so is my pet it's awful <laughs> yes. not the whole season for us to watch or something about how the bully punched the kid in the face because he had a weird face i love stuff like that i love high school films that try to do something new with the genre and i thought this was really fun it's kind of like Memento in a way in terms of you have a character who is waking up in the middle of something much like the audience and doesn't really know anything. It does a really great job of delivering exposition without making it feel like it's dumping plot points on you. Of course, it's got some really kick-ass ladies beating the crap out of each other, which I'm all for women being allowed to fight. And we can talk about this when we talk about Wonder Woman being allowed to fight and actually hit things because that's very rare uh, in, in a lot of action movies. You know, women are usually like horrible punchers or terrible shots or something like that. So I had a lot of fun with this. I think it's really creative. It was so light to begin with that when the daggers started coming out and when you talked about the brutality there, that headbutt that starts one of the fight scenes and the smack on the soundtrack made me think, whoa, we are not messing around with this. And that's what I loved about 7.2. It actually kind of reminded me of uh, Rian Johnson's Brick. Yeah. How in Brick... It is very much kind of like a teenage male fantasy of being lost in your emotions and your hormones and feeling like the world doesn't understand you. So you're this lone outsider on everything. And then with 7.2, it's kind of doing that, but it's subverting a lot of stuff in the process. When I watch movies that feature a lot of teenagers or even adults being teenagers, I get really uncomfortable with sex scenes or sexualization. I'm not against it on principle, but it's not always like healthily portrayed. So when all the girls start going completely over the top with the test tubes, the stethoscope as a very thin penis sort of thing, which I thought was another fun jab at the kind of hyper-masculinity of other movies like this, and the skeleton, like kind of putting a skeleton on each other, it was just over the top enough that it was clearly playing with that, and, but still having a lot of fun with it in the meantime so th there were tons of little like subverted moments like that that didn't wink at the audience but at the same time pushed it just far enough that it was kind of hilarious and insightful at the same time one of the things i liked pretty much the majority of the cast i would say is at least 90 percent women 
outside of the male teacher at the beginning and Pemulus, the boy who might be a potential love interest in the future, the guys are pretty much secondary. They're background window dressing, if you will. And I like that when she comes upon Pemulus and gives him a kiss, hoping that that will spark some type of memory, you get that awkward moment where he's completely blindsided and he tries to act cool, even though he's clearly taken aback. And in normal teen comedies, it would completely be the other way around, right? It'd be wall-to-wall dudes talking about sex, violence, whatever, you know? And I, it was really refreshing that you, you watch this film, and it's only after it ends, you think back, you're like, wait a minute, there wasn't really that many male characters in this, and it was thoroughly enjoyable. And I love how the one male character is not to besmirch people's looks, but he's, you know, this freckled ginger kid who's not a whole lot to write home about. He's not a glamazon. He's not Jake Ryan in 16 Candles who looks like he's 35. <laughs> he's a normal looking kid. You're not really sure why these girls would be, you know, the one girl actively says she doesn't know why he'd date someone like her. Well, he's not quarterback material here. I'm not really understanding. You know, you, you want to say this is what they're fighting over. <laughs> I'm all for movies that emphasize healthy female sexuality. Again, that's something else that isn't normally allowed, especially in a high school setting. I initially thought that scene with the skeleton and all that was like a dream sequence, like she was hallucinating. But they play it relatively straight. And I love just when they show up at the third act in their little lab coats. And it plays almost like an episode of Alias or something. You know, you're <laughs> yeah. thinking, has this turned into Orphan Black or... I just love how it mixes all these weird references and these weird genres, and you're left to say, is it intentional, or is it just really genius? Well, I think the intentionality there, when you were talking a bit earlier about kind of the fun aspects of the dialogue and the script, was when her we can only assume and go by her word is her best friend. When Cleo is saying, like, I, you know, I don't remember who I am. And she's like, oh, it's because you've been reading that bollocks Nietzsche. Yeah. Nietzsche is the ubermensch, superman, genius writer of men all the world over. That inclusion, that's one of those smart, not too much calling attention to itself because this is a school setting. Of course, maybe they've encountered Nietzsche at some point, but Nietzsche as opposed to hell, Aristotle or Plato or in modern terms, Foucault or Derrida. Nietzsche is the perfect person to use if you want to poke fun at that whole kind of like male dominated academia thing. So everything felt lovingly intentional, even though it was having fun with itself the entire time. So I thought this was great, Courtney Adam. If this was your less light pick, I'm extremely curious what your more light pick was like. It was an animated one about these four women who have stolen something and they're being chased by like a gazillion cops because it's an animated film. And at one point in the chase, or they come to a part of the road that's like a big roller coaster like thing because it's like a set kind of in a 3d game type world and then there's a little twist at the end in terms of like who is playing this game that we've been watching but it has a lot of the jerry Bruckheimer, michael bay kind of explosions one police car flips out and it takes out 20 cars and stuff like that so that was the original one but then i came across this and i said no no this speaks to me so excellent well i appreciate the pick and if i'm not being too presumptuous i think discussing Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay-esque explosions might be a decent enough segue into Toy Boys, if that's all right with y'all. Oh, I'm fine with that. Well, Toy Boys is kind of like a pre-internet, I don't know, I guess we're on like 
3.0 internet or whatever classification you want to use right now. But like, if you look at it on YouTube, it's got about 35,000 views. This We're not exactly talking a mega viral hit or anything like that. I don't even know how I found this. I've watched it for years again and again. It's kind of like my secret joke handshake with folks because it has been so obscure and apparently remains obscure. But basically, it's a send-up of the whole post-original Fast and Furious era where you had movies like Biker Boys and Torque and all these like super hyper-masculine, mega-fast, gotta go, get in the car, jump, oh my god, there's a woman, stuff that they were all embracing at the time. And there is an element of satire to it. I love the fact that all of these overly masculine dudes are essentially fighting over a toy. And when you think about that whole boys with their toys thing, it gets even better. But for me, it's just pure stupid fun, start to finish. I don't know if y'all enjoyed it, but... I have watched this maybe over a hundred times now, and certain parts of it just make me laugh every time. This one was weird for me. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a little bit to really figure out the parody elements, and I didn't know how old this was. I thought this was something fairly recent, and now that I know that it's kind of harkening back to stuff from about a decade ago. It makes more sense. I thought it was really funny that they're riding these little toy bikes, and it's just hilarious watching people try to stay on them or fake falls off of them because they're so low to the ground. The one thing that I noticed is that this almost seemed like also a parody of the trailers for these movies, too. What I really captured was not just the greatest hits elements, but the use of music. If anybody remembers those trailers for those movies, it was immediately dated by some of the top hits of the day that they were using. The trailer that they're kind of parodying is so reliant on different dated styles of music, a lot of like one hit wonders and stuff that was on top 40, stuff that you would have listened to at like your eighth grade promotion dance and thought you were really cool. (laughs) It, It really seemed to be sending up the marketing for these as well. The trailer aspect of it is where I'm kind of on the fence because I enjoyed the satire, but I found there's a point in the trailer where it started to go into more grindhouse style aesthetics Uh, i don't know maybe that was just a vibe i was getting and it felt wrong with the type of films that they were spoofing because the fast and furious torque what have you even back then there was always like a slickness to them when this film goes like full grindhouse you see one guy landing his toy bike in front of people and everyone else exploding i went okay that went a bit too far it almost ran a little too long for me, even though it's a three-minute short. But having said that, <laughs> when they start off talking about the streets of Orlando and you have a clear <laughs> shot of the Toronto CN Tower, I went, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> As someone from Toronto, you, you have my interest now. And there was a lot of moments where I'm sitting there I'm like, oh, yeah, Orlando looks a lot like downtown Toronto. I'm like, oh, been there, walked past there last week on my lunch break. Those moments were fun. And I, and I love the fact that one of the guys, um, I think it was Rico, was drinking Nas like in almost every other scene as as an energy drink. I went, okay, there's a lot of great jabs in this short. And I did did laugh a fair bit. I just think it it went a little too long. I wish they didn't add the grindhouse aspect to it. The runtime is what kind of threw me because it seems like they're, you can kind of see them grasping at a certain point to keep the flow going. 
Whereas that first, you know, minute, two minutes is really solid. See, the gratuitousness of that last minute helps sell it for me even further. You've got all the, the fun one-liners and stuff. And, Courtney, I loved your observation about how it's the mean streets of Orlando. I mean, it's shot, obviously, in Toronto. And then there's that part where they say, City of Angels, how come all I see is the devil? And before, of course, he... <laughs> takes another slam of his nods. But just like the out-of-control aspect of, I guess, kind of the grindhouse elements of it, I was looking at it more as one of those special effects showcases that are now a lot slicker and extremely well-produced that you can find on YouTube now. And the shot, the shot of him with the gun going completely out of control, it's like a submachine gun, and it's like, what, the, what, what are you guys shooting at? Are you shooting at anything? And the little jokes, there's obviously the punchline jokes. Actually, working in with that Grindhouse aesthetic, there's like some editing and discontinuity errors here. I love the whole part where he's giving his sunglasses to his little brother. And of course, you have the really obvious, Hey bro, little bro bro, I'm never gonna let anything happen to explosion. But they're both wearing the sunglasses at once. Going on with the whole making fun of boys with their toys, I love the different ways that... the teeny tiny motorcycle gets used as a weapon when it goes into that full action montage at the end and one guy pulls out a knife and then one of our heroes pulls the entire toy bicycle out from his back i as you can tell right now i'm losing it just talking about it well i had in one of my notes was like you don't bring a toy bike to a knife fight <laughs> uh, when i when i saw that moment again the first half of it as chris has said is really solid i love when they had the typical hey man and you can ride. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. And, you know, she does the slow motion hair flip a couple of times just to try and get it right. There's a lot of great moments in it. It was just the, uh, again, the grindhouse aesthetics and it it runs a little too long. It was like, it it got to a point. I was like, okay, I got the joke. I've laughed. Now, now let's move on. Kristen, any final thoughts on this one? I'd be interested to see people who were younger than me, whether they would understand it or not, considering how removed those movies are now. And even though The Fast and the Furious is kind of the only franchise that's remained, whether they would get it as much. That's a really awesome point, because this is kind of like a satirical, exaggerated version of what the Fast and Furious movies started as. And now they're airdropping cars onto buildings, lifting them onto another building, and then jumping out. So I guess much like our modern political situation, things have gotten so absurd that even what was once satire is now accepted as the normal. And I think with that, we are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with our discussion on Wonder Woman. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to be proceeding with our feature film of the day, the recently released Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins of Monster and some television fame, written by Alan Heinberg, starring Gal Gadot as the titular Wonder Woman, Chris Pine, Robin Wright, David Thewlis, basically a whole host of awesome folks, in a origin story that tells of Wonder Woman's birth or sculpting, depending on however you want to put it in this case, on the island of Themyscira and how she became involved in the outside world and the affairs of men. Courtney, we'll start with you real quick, just because this was your pick, but Kristen, obviously, very curious to your thoughts here. So, Courtney, why'd you pick this? 
I know normally we tend to look at underappreciated films, smaller titles, and especially films that the listeners can find either on DVD, streaming, what have you. But I've been waiting for this movie for I don't know how long. And I was so upset that when they finally, when DC finally decided that they were going to bring Wonder Woman to the big screen, they had to hold our hands and introduce her in Batman v Superman. Since we were doing the summer fun month and I was thinking kind of blockbuster film and I wanted to do a film by a female filmmaker and I know especially when it comes to blockbusters that's very hard to come by the the timing of the release of Wonder Woman just fit perfectly and I'm glad I chose this film because I was going to go see it anyway but there's so much to talk about and I absolutely loved this movie and for a superhero film what Jenkins does with this film beats like half of the stuff that we've seen in maybe the last 10 years in, in the sense that she could have just had a simple Wonder Woman action movie and done but I like the fact that she presented strong female characters throughout the review that I wrote on Cinema Access I talked about how I didn't get the impression that any of the women were treated like objects and I know another writer who I appreciate called me out on and said well you know all the men kind of drool over her throughout the film but what I was saying by that is if you think of like Suicide Squad or any of the Fast and the Furious films there's always those shots where they're just gratuitous shots of the female body every character in Wonder Woman serves a purpose the minority characters in Wonder Woman they serve a purpose throughout the entire film and the film even if it's a brief moment has the confidence to talk about ptsd the appropriation of indigenous land racism in hollywood even if there's like brief moments the fact that a a big budget superhero film had the stones to present that i thought it it all worked beautifully i have some issues with the ending but that's my initial spiel on why i chose it i am not a wonder woman person i have no connection to the comics or the television show hated everything dc has done under this new cinematic universe So I had very low hopes for this movie, even though I knew it was directed by a woman. And when I went and saw it, I was just blown away by how much I love this movie. I've seen it twice. I usually don't pay to go see movies after I press screen because nine times out of ten, they're just not worth seeing again. This, I was proud to go give my money to this movie. I'd consider going to see it a third time because I think it's just so necessary to cinema right now and to the DC universe. It totally trumped Marvel. Marvel can't even get a a female heroine movie in for another, what, two a year or two? And after seeing The Mummy, which could not have come out at a worse time in contrast to this, (laughs) it's so necessary. To what Courtney was saying, there's a lot of little things watching this movie that as a female I didn't know I needed. So yeah, I mean, the male characters all have to comment about Diana's sexuality, but she never stops to let that bother her she never comments on it she's just like "Eh, whatever she just moves on with her life i think there's an awareness that men are gonna have their thoughts about how she looks and it's up to her to prove that she's beyond that so that didn't really bother me for me what i was really proud to notice and was ultimately showing me how sad hollywood is as a, a whole to women is stuff like the scenes in themiscira where it's just these wide images of women kicking ass with not a man in sight it is so rare to see women fill a frame full of women and not have any male characters i mean you look at films you know just individual frames it's usually two to one men and I didn't realize just how amazing it was to see just all women or watch Diana fight in a fight scene and not have the camera try to figure out a way to shoot up her skirt or 
you know, sexualizer, the sucker punch shot, as I call it, where, you know, you're trying to find a way to sexualize her and show that she's tough. That's not here. And those are really small things that not a lot of filmgoers are going to notice. But I, I'd like to hope that women who have grown up with cinema in their life will notice that. I love everything about this movie. The third act is a mess, but you got to take the sweet with the sour. I'm going to feel like an extreme odd man out on a lot of this because I did really enjoy it. One of the things I know you mentioned some displeasure at how she was introduced in Batman v Superman. I am an, an unabashed Snyder fanatic. I actually really enjoy Sucker Punch, but that's on kind of a more an intellectual subversion level. Sucker the... Punch I do own. I got that for my birthday for reasons, so oh, I can't sh- complain. Can't complain. Interesting. Okay. Because one of the things that I love about the DC universe so far, and, and one of the things that makes it not actually a universe, and Wonder Woman built on that perfectly, was that you don't have to watch any of the other movies. Wonder Woman works perfectly as its own self-contained movie. It's not an advertisement for another movie. You can just sit there watch Wonder Woman, enjoy it, and then you don't have to worry about sitting there for a trailer for another movie or anything like that. Those opening sequences, especially on Themyscira, I was actually getting a vibe, especially when we were looking at the Black Amazons, that reminded me of a scene in Spike Lee's Crooklyn with RuPaul. The girl who's the central character of Crooklyn, she sees this encounter between RuPaul and a store owner, where RuPaul is dominating the store owner like they're engaging in some little fun but then he takes it too far and she just puts him in his place and it's that identity forming perspective that usually we're going to see you know those slow motion shots of dudes getting out of helicopters or flying off into the sky or donning their armor or whatever and i loved that the the opening scenes of themiscria feminism that isn't intersectional is not a good feminism and i love that she was getting her strength not just from robin wright but from these amazing powerful talented women that don't look like her that have their own skills and abilities on the battlefield and in order for diana to prove herself among everyone she has to embrace everyone's strengths not just the folks that look like her but everyone's strengths in order to proceed and move on that intersectionality also plays in with some of the main casting because you're talking about the ptsd aspect what i loved was samir played by saeed tahmoy because that dude is freaking sexy he approaches each scene with such confidence that scene with him and diana where they're teasingly trying to one-up each other on what languages they know. I'm watching this strong-as-hell woman and this sexy Moroccan-descended French-American actor embrace other languages. Where the hell is this in other movies? Why can't we get more of this? There's so much that happens in this film that, I don't know, we've been in doctrine in these superhero films, at least this type of superhero films for, I want to say, at least 12 years now. And watching Wonder Woman felt like I was seeing something brand new, even though the parts that I thought where it falls is in the third act where it falls into the traditional, I guess, superhero tropes, like that final fight scene did nothing for me, but everything leading up to it, I thought was great. And to your point about the use of diversity, because I know we haven't even got to Gal Gadot's performance, but we'll get to that in a minute. When you're talking about the Amazonian women, especially the, the ones of different colors and ethnicities on the island, what I really appreciated about that was, if you think of something like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is another 
franchise that they're trying to build out. They had incorporated diversity in one or two scenes. So I guess all the people, the head of state at the Ministry of Magic, what have you, are all various backgrounds, what have you. But they don't really do much. They're just kind of there for a scene just to say, hey, hey, we have diversity. Whereas here, when the battle starts, all the women are fighting side by side. Like every time they did the speed wrapping in slow motion, I was getting excited. I'm like, oh, yes, I want more of this. And then when she's off the island, I figured, okay, this is where we're going to get this, the standard. She teams up and it's going to be her and a whole bunch of white men doing the fighting. And I was like, no, we got characters like Chief. We got characters like Samir. And even though you get a brief idea of their backgrounds and what they've come from and what they've experienced, I like that they were part of the team. They were integral to the team. It wasn't the Chris Pine show. Diana is still the focal point, and she is amazing. Like when they have that whole no man's land scene, and she's emerging in her full Wonder Woman guard. I want to stand up and cheer right there in the theater. But the fact that the supporting characters were there to actually support in a positive way, that's one of the things that I look back at all the Marvel films, and I go, where is this? I think it was either you or Kristen that made a point about Marvel being two years away from getting their first female-driven film. And that's from a character that we haven't even seen yet, that people don't really know about. Black Widow, how come she doesn't have a film? How about some of the other females that they've introduced up to this point? Like it's The way how Hollywood has treated women, especially when it comes to blockbusters, is, is just ridiculous. And Wonder Woman, with the second record-breaking box office week, is showing that they need to start opening their minds and, and broadening their horizons. I understand the cries from especially women of color who wanted more women of color in this movie. And that's a very valid criticism that pretty much proves that the movie could have just stayed on Themyscira and didn't really ever need to go to England if it didn't want to. There is a gaping avoidance of we do have the the Samir character and the chief who talk about the way that the U.S., specifically has created this hierarchy of minority people and one of the biggest things that they ignore is the black experience in this movie you know there's not a moment where diana goes up to a a person in england a, a black person and asks them to explain things and it's one of the moments that i think the movie tries to distance from it's why this movie is set during world war one and not world war two even though it's pretty much world war two there's that issue of world war two to not really looking so great for the U.S. World War One is kind of the war that we often say definitely had a bad guy. Like, we knew who was in the wrong. And we should know who's in the wrong in World War Two. but there are still people out there that deny the Holocaust. So there's some valid criticisms that the movie has working against it. But for me, I love the fact that there seems to be a respect and a reverence for women in this movie. Not just white women or tall women. It's women in general. For me, it's that moment where the no man's land sequence which i think is one of the best moments in the movie where she says i'm going out there to save these people you can follow or not screw you guys and she goes up there and she's capable she's able to fight back and when they get to this town and it's one of the things that i don't think we see a lot of in movies because hollywood assumes that if you have a strong woman she has to be so domineering that no man would want her which is why you see a lot of movies about women who have high pressure jobs and like their children tell them i hate them or you know their husband's cheating on them here you have chris pine's character who says, I'm going to be supportive. He enlists the guys to aid her in her fight. They lift the metal up so that she can go and take out the sniper. And they don't feel threatened by her dominance. Yes, Chris Pine's character is stupid in the fact that he keeps bringing up that her outfit is distracting. But I think he really shows some of the things that even though he's a good person, he's still got white male privilege because he is going to always be a white man. And for him to realize at the end 
that there's more going on behind the scenes of this war that might involve complicity in himself. I mean, that says a lot, too. This movie's very complex about the world. No, I completely agree. And and that's actually why uh, my least favorite sections were more in the London kind of comedy aspect than the conclusion, because the conclusion and man, when I saw David Thewlis on screen, I had no idea David Thewlis was in this movie. And I was like, oh, praise heaven. He's one of my favorite actors and he could be so threatening and charming all at once because I saw that final scene with him literally assembling the wreckage of war in an attempt to squash this strong woman is basically a direct rebuke of the primarily white male dominated superhero movies that we've seen so far and that's also why I was impressed with at least that aspect of the screenplay and that his villainy isn't in so much the destruction it's in getting people to accept the normal evil ideas that are in their minds and it's probably because I watched hypernormalization yesterday and I've got the unseen strings of power dancing around in my head but I thought that was a, a really effective and direct rebuke of the industry at large, considering what's been kind of shoved onto our screen so far. I had a really long conversation with a friend of mine about those London sections, and I'm curious about y'all's thoughts there, because I kind of have a distaste for Whedon-esque snarky feminism stuff. That part ended up bothering me a lot. Throughout the rest of the movie, Diana takes no shit from anybody. She fights back on everything, and you have that line with the secretary where Diana correctly calls you know, the secretarial work slavery, but I think that also goes to your point, Kristen, that this is avoiding some racial politics there, too. So maybe I can chuck that onto the criticism pile of the section. But the biggest issue I had with it was that's the only part of the movie that she is kind of passive. So she has this pushback against the term secretary and, you know, the secretary is so happy that she has someone on her side. You know, you get that great laugh line. Ooh, I like her. But then when Pine tells his superiors that Diana is his secretary, she doesn't push back on that. I realize that it is speaking to the mansplaining aspect of being a woman anywhere. So it's not the existence of the scene that's weird for me. It's the fact that she doesn't really do anything. She doesn't push back. And it's literally the only time in the movie that she doesn't really push back. So I know we've been kind of going in a like a, a me, Courtney, Kristen, me, Courtney, Kristen thing. But Kristen, I'm really curious about your thoughts on that. That's not something I noticed the first two times I saw it. Now that you bring it up, I'm kind of like, yeah. And I think that that might be some type of way of making that impact where she does tell the general, how dare you, you need to fight with your men more impactful. Because those scenes in London, and Joss Whedon has taken his lumps for kind of having a little bit of fake feminism in him, especially if you watch some of those early Buffy episodes. Xander is a textbook nice guy, no matter what you <laughs> want to say about that. Uh, but in this sense, when she gets to England, there's a lot of comparisons to, if anybody's seen Nanotchka, from 1939 that fish out of water who has been in this very dominant culture 
And in Ninochka, it was communist Russia coming here and learning about all the fun of democracy. In this sense, she goes there as much of what is said is that they don't deserve you. And it's because she goes to England and she wants to wear what she wants. And you really are aligned against the people of England, the soldiers who were leering at her, and even Chris Pine to an extent, the fact that he has to step in and be like, eyes to yourselves, man. And I love Etta Candy. I think she's just amazing. She's even given some chance to fight back when she's got the sword. But there are moments where you do have to have the clothing montage. And this is where I've gotten pushback from predominantly male critics when I've said that some some scenes feel like the studio demanded a couple concessions. And so like the clothing montage, even though it's really funny and we get to watch her show how ridiculous fashion in general is to women, she still has to wear, you know, a dress. She has to wear a skirt, even though we get those jokes. She wakes up with her hair down. So we get Gal Gadot with this long, lustrous locks. The third act annoys me the most from that perspective, because when a character sacrifices themselves, and I don't know how, how we all feel about spoilers, but there's a character that dies. It comes at a very kind of Casablanca-y, this was a great love type of situation. I argued with a a critic colleague of mine about this who said, well, it's because Diana fights for love. Yes, but it's not romantic love. It's not the love of a man and a woman. It should be love of humanity. And I really wanted her galvanization to be in it. Part of it was I really wanted to see Connie Nielsen and Robin Wright come back in some form because I thought they were so fantastic. I wanted the galvanizing to be from her time on Themyscira, not because she met this person and had this perfect relationship with them that took place maybe over a couple of days. And somebody tried to explain to me, no, no, that's not what it was at all. It kind of felt like the script kind of said, well, we need to have this big hero moment. We need to emphasize that she's definitely into a man, even though. And there's a whole discussion going on on Twitter right now about consent laws and her not knowing necessarily what consent is. Can she consent? So for me, the third act kind of feels like that, that we have to give some concessions to tamp down her agency a little bit. Again, it's not detrimental to the film overall. For me, I still loved it, but... I did want it to go a little bit further. That's interesting that you're talking about the she should have been fighting for the love of humanity and not the love of one man, because I think that's one of the things that was bothering me about the third act. But I but you verbalized it in such a succinct way. So I'm thinking back to I'm like, that's exactly one of the things that was really irking me uh, to jump back to your question, Andrew, about the London sequence and her being very passive. It didn't bother me that much. I know there was a lot of jokey uh, humor. But I think the reason why is because I took it as her seeing the way that the world really is and how messed up it is and how repressive it is. And I liked that scene where she she calls out the general and says, where I come from, wars, the generals fight along their soldiers and don't do it behind comfy desks and stuff. Without those moments, when she's in London, she's constantly told, wear this, don't do this, don't do that. And she gets to the battlefield and she's in no man's land and she's like, you know what, I don't have to play by these rules of men, these rules that are sacrificing people and not caring about society. So I think her marching up out of the trenches wouldn't have been as triumphant as it felt if we didn't have to see these films where people are constantly trying to push her back and she's saying no and if you think about it even after the intimate moment with chris pine chris pine immediately goes back to repressive male role when it's telling her well you can't go after here you can't kill this person we're not going to try and stop the bomb until an entire village gets wiped out and then he realizes well maybe what i'm telling her is wrong maybe i need to support her a little go back to supporting her some more like even though he's trying to be the i'm above 
these people. There's a lot of times where Jenkins kind of harkens back to like, no, he's he's still very much the privileged individuals that, he, that he's been birthed from. So I took that second section, that middle section, as a necessary evil to getting to the triumphant aspect of it. But Chris, when you were saying about that third part, because that was one of the things that was bothering me about that final fight. I didn't think that the, the fight with Ares was as interesting as the stuff that was going on around him. And that was one of the things that kind of bothered me. Like I was caring more about what was going on with Steve Trevor at that moment and the rest of the guys than what Wonder Woman was enduring. Especially for a big budget film, I should be focused on the central hero at that moment. The best fight scene of the movie is her defeating Ludendorff, Danny Houston's character. And it's one of the reasons why, say what you will about this movie being set in World War One, it's World War Two because I was all for Diana Prince beating the crap out of Nazis, which is effectively what he is. And watching that fight scene, because she really, truly believes that it's going to end the war. And it's one of those moments where, again, I love watching a woman who's allowed to have a fight scene and take her lumps and still be able to kill somebody i mean she straight up murders somebody which is very rare superman snaps a guy's neck and people are horrified at the character doing it not that he's a male because we anticipate men being able to kill somebody with their bare hands we don't see women do it unless they've been beaten to the point of exhaustion i think of something like cabin in the woods where it doesn't really matter as long as she suffers and diana doesn't have that she takes this guy out which is why when you find out that Ares is, I, I wanted it to be more of a, the movies play things as straight as it can up until this point. I wanted her to realize that there was more to this than just taking out one guy. Again, Chris Pine's argument in his speech is so effective because he's commenting about the world at large and also himself. That when Ares actually does show up and she defeats him, it does leave a really gaping hole in any future installments. So what the hell happens now? If Ares, based on the mythos that we know, is the reason for all the bad things in the world, does that mean that World War II doesn't happen? Happen? Are we going to have to explain all that in a future series? It opens up a huge plot hole at that point that was unnecessary. See, that's something I grappled with pretty directly in my review. I thought it was really important that it was World War One instead of World War Two for the setting, because World War One was essentially a pointless war. It was allies gathering in upon allies based on one assassination that was attempted and then failed, and then attempted and then failed, and then it finally succeeded. World War One with the trench warfare and the machine guns and the gas, it introduced a broadened feeling of hopelessness that war could have a purpose at all. Like, there is no inherent value in war that our divine systems, our beliefs, our moral structures, they were shattered by World War One And World War Two. while we have Holocaust deniers, yeah, Hitler was the bad guy. And with World War One, who was the bad guy? It was just allies piling in on allies. So treating it like as a plot hole, I think if we just look at history directly, and that's why I think that the connections between Wonder Woman and the rest of the movies... Um, they're more thematic than they are direct because we know, or if you, for whatever reason, uh, listeners have not seen it, you know, in Batman v Superman, one of the mysteries around Wonder Woman is why she disappeared. And with Wonder Woman, the movie itself, she has vanquished 
the evil. She thinks that this is going to put humanity on its course, but humanity does what humanity is going to do. And since World War One was such a moral destabilizing force, you know, it was one of the things that brought about modernism. Since we know World War Two is coming, what does that mean for Diana when she put all of this effort in and war does come to an end and she does kill what she thinks is this evil and we've still got the nuclear bomb coming? It's perfectly reasonable at that point to say, you know what? Humanity's screwed. I'm going to go acquire weapons for the rest of my apparently immortal existence. So that didn't bother me so much, but this is something I do wrestle with with Zack Snyder's movies in that it's sometimes more fun to intellectualize them than it is to experience them. Like, I like writing about Sucker Punch more than I actually like watching Sucker Punch. So that may be in kind of a similar issue with Wonder Woman here where we've got such a happy ending, but evil is still going to be out there. So I could see how that would be disappointing to some folks, knowing that there are future stories down the line and so on. I can see that. I know we've kind of danced around it, but what were your impressions of Godot's performance? Because I thought she did a really good job, and I was one of the few people that when she was initially cast, partly because I'm a huge Fast and the Furious fan, I thought that she could have the charisma needed for the role. I know a lot of people were questioning the body type and making Wonder Woman a model opposed to an Amazon goddess. I find that debate has, well, except for a few really sexist reviews, has kind of been quiet. So I just wanted to know what you guys thought about her performance. I was one of the few that was like, I'm not a fan. I wanted somebody who was tough looking. And I thought that, yeah, Gal Gadot, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman. But she, yeah, she looks like a beauty pageant contestant because she was. And then I ended up reading a bunch of stuff like she she was in the army and she's definitely a tough chick. So, I mean, her film output, though, up until this point, I didn't think was anything to write home about. So I was a little skeptical, but she blew me away. She's tough. She's allowed to be vulnerable. She's beautiful, but she doesn't let that become something she falls back on. She's just an optimistic source of joy in this movie. I mean, you can see why people in the movie are just enchanted with her. It's almost like watching Amy Adams in Enchanted for me in terms of a beautiful performance that makes me happy about life. And all of it's mitigated. It's all nicely blended. Gal Gadot can smile at somebody and it's beautiful to see and it makes you happy, but then she can go and impale a guy on a roof. Or <laughs> she can wear this great Carmen Sandiego-esque type of outfit and still be a badass warrior who's sparring with Robin Wright. I love how she interacts with the female characters in her life, whether it's her mom, who's Connie Nielsen, or her aunt, who's Robin Wright, or with Chris Pine. I think her and Chris Pine have some great kind of Pepper and Tracy-esque banter, especially the whole double entendre sleeping together conversation on the boat. I think they have some great comedic timing there. So she really surprised me. This is kind of the transformational role of the year for me. I enjoyed her a lot here, too. And, and the banter on the boat, Diana's right, folks. Really, all that we're needed for procreation is our sperm, and pleasure is obtainable many other ways. You'll be surprised how many people don't understand that line. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I did really dig uh, about 
Godot's performance here is it can kind of continued on the no nonsense I'm going to get to business even when she is engaged in the more pleasurable aspects of her life with the dress or with the drink or with the food or with her training it is again getting down to business one of the reasons I loved her introduction in Batman v Superman was that she comes in and she immediately dominates the battlefield with no words exposed and jumps straight in with a warrior's purpose and I'm glad that that warrior's purpose continued on with Godot's performance in Wonder Woman that there's still that element of driving forward no matter what she's doing and you made a really cool point Kristen a little earlier about people being upset that Superman they're more upset at the character snapping Zod's neck than they are about the violence itself because in the comic books there is in the lead up to Infinite Crisis which is one of the many DC super events that have happened that all end in crisis but one of the inciting points of the crisis with superheroes and faith in superheroes is that there's a live feed of Wonder Woman snapping someone's neck that goes viral and the response to that was oddly enough almost the exact same response most fans had to superman snapping zod's neck at the end of man of steel i'm curious to kind of explore the nuances there because diana is brutal here and when she has that final fight well i guess the second to final fight there is no obscuring or sugarcoating the murder that she takes place in or the justified killing or however you want to put it even though he's huffing his super cocaine in an attempt to kind of even the playing field but it is a brutal moment i'm interested now kind of just like with the history of comic books and since that neck snapping thing has been both an inciting point in fiction twice now what it is about that killing of the german cocaine huffing guy that i guess <laughs> makes it okay versus the superman next snapping in this instance i look at it in terms of how females are allowed to fight in the history of action films and a lot of times you don't get women who are able to unapologetically be placed on the same level as a male action hero it's why we have so few female action heroes because the idea is that it's not a fair fight and that if a woman is allowed to kill somebody, it's usually in self-defense after they've been traumatized. Superman, when Man of Steel, that happened, a lot of people brought up that, oh, it went against the character. That the character who has embodied truth, justice in the American way would never actually murder somebody, even if it was to save lives. He would never have done that because he's just so strong and studly and awesome that he could have easily found a way to get out of that situation. The dichotomy, I think, is always that they're criticizing the character, the history of the character, and that gender is allowed to be irrelevant. In the case of Wonder Woman, gender has to be relevant in that sequence because, for once, it's watching a woman capably fight a man who should be her the person to best her. Why should he be allowed to best her? Because he's a male. So when she succeeds in taking him out, it's a success in terms of the history of films that have not allowed women to be that active, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And actually, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about how when women are allowed to actually engage in that kind of justified brutality or killing or 
or necessary whatever, it's always done in a, kind of like a single white female-esque way that there has to be something wrong with them in order to be able to carry out these actions, not that it is part of some kind of righteous cause. In terms of it being, I guess, allowed in this film compared to Superman, is I think also the fact that it gets buffered with her not killing what's the sorry the the scientist's name, Doctor Poison. Yeah, that was has also been a a very big point of contention for a lot of people. There was a great article on BlackGirlNerds.com about her not killing Doctor Poison being a stand-up, I guess, for the ideals of white feminism. I'm not going to get into that whole discussion, but it's a very interesting article. But I think the fact that she doesn't kill Doctor Poison and preaches the whole notion of love, that kind of makes it a little easier for some people to swallow opposed to Superman just snapping someone's neck and being like, I had no choice. I completely agree with everything that Christian was saying, though. The way how violence is portrayed, and we've used the term allowed when women are allowed to evoke violence in cinema there's definite unspoken rules that most films adhere to this one they're trying to break the mold but i still felt that they were kind of softening it for the critics by having her follow that up with i'm not going to kill this woman who has killed you know thousands with her with her bomb the point that you bring up, which is great, it's not necessarily white feminism. It's also ableist feminism, too. Dr. Poison wears this Phantom of the Opera mask. She's obviously got some sort of physical deformity. Yep, that's true. And for me, and there's actually an article I think that just came out about this today, which I'm pissed I didn't write myself, <laughs> um, about how you know the movie plays on that and plays on the concept of a a woman who is unattractive being an easy mark for villainy. The only guy that's going to give her the time of day is this Nazi villain. Chris Pine's character plays on the fact that she's unattractive and disabled to get her to waffle, I guess. I'm not really ever sure what his plan is in that scene. And the fact that she allows her to live after the mask is taken off and shows how horribly ugly, oh my god, her face is. And it didn't bother me as much the first time, again, because as a disabled person who's watched so many films, I expect that, and that's very sad, but I expected it. For her to let that woman live, and again, you're you're kind of saying to yourself, well, where did that woman go? Did she go off to plan for World War II, where thousands of people are going to be killed again? You kind of got to take the good with the bad. She's a lot, and that's where I think a lot of those things you you have to ask how involved the studio is was that something that the studio said like hey we have to let her do this i i get the idea being we don't want to have sisters killing sisters type of thing but it does end up belittling the character a little bit because this is still a villain who's a villain all villains should be treated the same especially considering that ludendorff isn't the one coming up with these horrific things to he's just implementing them I love that train of thought that you got going on here because I I adored how gleefully human Ludendorff and Dr. Poison's relationship was. They're so giddy at the prospect of gassing and killing people. Like That is one of the most adorable mass murders I have (laughs) ever seen. It seems like they missed a really big opportunity by not letting Dr. Poison see through a little more of Chris Pine's bullshit in that moment. I did like she called him on it. But at the same time, like, they wrote in a situation where she did allow herself in some sense, or really, the writers wrote her in a way that any kind of attention at all is going to distract her from her main goal, which, again, seems totally alien to the human 
aspects of the villainy. That does feel like they maybe missed a really huge point. To go to your point, Kristen, it's not deathly to the movie, but it does show where this kind of criticism, it can just make these movies better. It's not, you guys are bad people because this happened and you enjoyed it, but you didn't notice this. It's, folks, these movies are just going to get better if we address this stuff. They're going to get more interesting. They're not going to suddenly become a lumbered mess of every single kind of person imaginable on screen. Yeah, the hope is that they'll become more inclusive. Yeah. The one last thing I'll say is, I find it interesting that we're in an age where we get the first, I would say, truly great female-led superhero film. I know studios will say, well, we put out Catwoman and Electra. I don't count those as actual movies because they're garbage. But... um, Well, the fact that they even made those films is is a completely other film. But I find it interesting that we're in an age where we have to discuss and debate who Wonder Woman kills and who she saves and intellectual discourse, which is great. This film has spawned so many great and interesting articles. But then I look at we're just a year removed from Deadpool and Logan coming. I guess Logan was earlier this year where the male characters could kill for Glee with an R rating this time. And it's wonderful and it's being praised and people love it as many strides forward that this film takes it just reminds us how far back it has already started that it has and that it's trying to catch up with we were talking about why in the world it's taken Marvel so long to actually have a Black Widow movie and they're not having a Black Widow movie. It's because Joss Whedon is too busy writing her to be simultaneously the girlfriend, mother, nanny, wife, emotional crutch of every yep. single man on the Avengers as opposed to developing as a character. So not disgusting a... that she can't have children. Uh, there's this one critic I really like and he thinks that it's totally unfair that people point to that scene alone but Whedon has tried to say that it was a poor framing of the words and I can see where it could be interpreted differently but your job as a screenwriter is to make sure that people interpret things a certain way so if you wanted it interpreted differently write it a different way yeah and if that was the only problem then maybe yeah we could call it a little overblown but when she's back to nursing everyone's wounds and so on later a little rough but we're getting away from Wonder Woman and I completely agree there has been some dumb conversation around this but I think like our conversation here has been particularly robust and healthy and I hope listeners that you take this as a model moving forward any final thoughts on Wonder Woman such an important movie go see it it's far from perfect it's not a masterpiece but if you have small little girls or you were just a female that wants to see some great representation you kind of need to see so we can get more movies that represent the female experience from all sorts of different angles our plugs. Kristen, why don't you start with yourself? How can folks find you? How can folks support you? I am on Twitter at journeys underscore film. I post a lot of my stuff there. You can visit journeysandclassicfilm.com if you want to see my classic film reviews. I also put my podcast out, Ticklish Business. You can look at that at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. It's also on Twitter at ticklishbiz. You can also, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, I, you know, that, that's a title. I'm never going to get another title that's going to be that catchy or that quippy. And then I post all my contemporary essays and stuff at medium.com slash at Kristen Lopez. You can also see a lot of the stuff that I've written at herdtell.com. I'm all over the internet, so you can definitely find me uh, a multitude of ways and get in touch. Your thoroughness is inspiring. For our part, <laughs> uh, of course, you can reach us on Gmail if you want to see, hear, leave feedback, especially on this episode. I think it's been a great one at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. We'll include links in the description as normal. You can reach me at can't stop Drew. You can 
also go to my website, Can't Stop the Movies. And if you want to support my production work here for this, as well as Can't Stop the Movies and Pixels and Praxis and all that good stuff, I've got a Patreon rolling. We'll include a link here. Those are all my plugs. Courtney, how about you? Also, since we're talking about Patreon, the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com who host our show, they also have a Patreon account, so share the love. Start supporting all these fine people that are doing great work, Andrew and Modern Superior. Also, you can reach me, I guess I take care of the Changing Reels Twitter account, so that's at Changing Reels AC. Or if you want to get to me personally on Twitter, at SmallMind. Well, it's been a pleasure, folks. Kristen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope you'll have me on again. That's in the works. I think we got some good ideas now. So for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 